All right. The message is entitled, The Life Source of the Church. We have seen what is the church. We've seen the priesthood of the believers. But the life source of the church is very important. In our opening study, we pointed out that the church of Jesus Christ is described by many metaphors in the scriptures in order to provide a more complete view of the nature of the church. Uh, some of these metaphors describe the church as his body, communicating uh, unity and efficiency, his flock, communicating uh, our vulnerability and dependency on him, and a virgin bride describing the purity of our life and intimate engagement to him and with him, his building identifying the place of his abode. You're here, you're the church, not this building. We gather together as a witness to the community. His army, describing the devotion of the kingdom and the warfare that goes on constantly, standing for truth. And his family, demonstrating our relationship and resemblance to him and of him completely. And so the, in, in most of the metaphors, as you can see, there's a quality of life and a power that's associated with the church. Who is the source uh, of this power and quality uh, that does this? It is no one but the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. He gives us the power as well as the quality of life. And he's a third member of the Trinity. Remove the Holy Spirit from the church and you have uh, no church organism, but an organization instituted by the maintaining of man's devotions and devices to put together people under some common cause. That's all it is. And so the person of the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God that makes the church an organism rather than an organization. He asks to the church, he saves, he directs, he guides, he teaches that we're going to see. Listen to A.W. Tozer, he said this, quote, if, um, if we stop the work of the Holy Spirit today, about 95% of what are, is going on in the churches wouldn't go on. And we would not know the difference. That's an amazing statement. Last century, about 1950s. Spoke as a prophet. Instead of having the unity of the priesthood of believers, you would have individual works of self-interest and self-glory. And that's what goes on often in the church today. You have a striving to attain, so you have to have a striving to maintain. You've got to work to people. You've got to do your thing. You've got to impress them. The Lord Jesus made this very clear when he told his disciples the following in John 6.63. It is in the Spirit... It is the spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. It's the spirit of God that does what he's done in your life and mine and in the church, as we're going to see. No one else. Paul the Apostle understood this completely as he told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3, 5 through 6. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of being of ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, many Pentecostal people say, see, the law kills, the Spirit gives life. So I don't study. I just get up here and just impromptu to give my message. The Spirit comes upon me. It's not what it's talking about. A total corruption of the text. Okay? It's the Spirit that gives life. The law judges us, condemns us. The law says, I'm guilty. That's what he's talking about for justification before God. Now, it is for this very purpose that God receives all honor and glory. Not the pastor, not you, not I. He does it all. If it were not for the Holy Spirit of God, most of us would still be in bed this morning. And if not in bed, we certainly wouldn't be here in church. But you're here because you've been born again. You love the Lord. You come to grow. You come to look to Him. And that's the important thing. 
So in view of having said all this, let's look at the Holy Spirit from three perspectives so we can see the nature of the church and his involvement. First, the Holy Spirit is a person. Second, the Holy Spirit in the believer. And then thirdly, the Holy Spirit in the church. We'll begin with the Holy Spirit in a person. The person of the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, as you know. Any analogy will always uh, break down if whatever you use. Uh, some people use an egg, you know, the hard shell, then the white, and then the yolk, and it's fine. But if you push it too far, it'll break down. Or an orange, the peel, and then the white, and then the heart of the, 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 the orange. So any analogy will break down sooner or later. And yet, the Father is God. Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 1, 1 through 2 says, God, who at different times and in diverse manners spoke in times past to the fathers, has in these last days spoken unto us through his dear Son. So God the Father is God. God the Son is God. Philippians 2, 6, he emptied himself of his glory and he became incarnate. Hebrews 1, 8 confirms this and many others. The Holy Spirit is God. In Acts 5, 3 through 4, um, Peter and them said to Ananias, you have lied to God, the Holy Spirit. So all three are said to be God. The three persons are co-equal, but distinct persons, yet one God. Some argue that the word Trinity is never found in the Bible, but neither is the word rapture. But both doctrines are taught in the Bible. The word that is used for God in Genesis, the first verse, is Elohim. El is one. Elohim, ending with an I am, H-I-M, is a plurality. So there's a plurality right at the beginning, the Trinity. Elohim, from the very beginning. The doctrine of the Trinity begins with the first verse of the Bible. The Trinity is in conversation with itself, if you remember, in Genesis 1.26. It says there, um, the Trinity converts, it says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Who was, who was God speaking to? A horny toes and lizards? Speaking to himself. Our likeness, our image. The Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. And so you have the three persons all being God. You have the Shema of Israel. Important in Deuteronomy 6.4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Again, teaching the doctrine of the Trinity. For the word one there is the word akad, a compound unity of one. Opposed to the absolute word that says absolute one. So throughout all these key verses in, the, in, in Old Testament scriptures, it is very evident of the three persons of the Trinity. The Apostle John attested to the plurality of the Godhead, as you know, in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was of God, and God was the Word. The Father and the Son, God. Very, very clear. The Apostle Paul closed the letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 13.14, with the Trinitarian blessing. Listen, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. All three of them. Now, if there is no Trinity, why all the mention? But with the apostles about the Trinity, if it's supposed to exist, there would be a contradiction. Paul would be speaking blasphemous and teaching spiritual error. There is no Trinity. Man is an inferior Trinity, by the way. You realize your body, soul, and spirit, yet you never introduce yourself as such. You don't say, hi, I'm, I'm Xavier body. This is Xavier soul. Yeah. Your body goes to the ground. You're dead. And your spirit goes before the Lord. And and your, and your soul is your intellect, emotion, and will that, that involves you in the whole process. Okay? You're a trinity. I'm an inferior trinity, creating the image and likeness of God. Now, the person of the Holy Spirit is a person, not a mere essence or power. And many times Christians just pass the Holy Spirit off as this. Now, kind of like the force in, um, you know, 
Darth Vader or something. Um, this is one of the weaknesses of the extreme Pentecostalism that identifies and refers to the Holy Spirit always as a mere power. He is referred to by the personal pronoun he and him over and over again in John 14, 15, and 16 as Jesus spends his night before he's betrayed, speaking to his apostles and disciples. He speaks to men, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul, Acts 13, 2. He forbids and permits preaching as Paul in Acts chapter 16. Don't preach here, preach here. He prophesies about the future. 1 Timothy 4, 1 says, Now the Spirit expressly or clearly says that in the latter times some will fall or will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Very clearly that there will be people falling away. He speaks very clearly. He imparts the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. Agape love. The rest are manifestations of agape love. It's singular there. And he is the agent of the supernatural gifts, called the gifts of the Holy Spirit, not the gifts of the Father or the gifts of the Son, but the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, the person of the Holy Spirit is called the Comforter, as you know. He is the replacement of Jesus by the Father, Jesus said this in John 14, 16, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, and he may abide with you forever. The word another, alos, means the same kind and of the same source. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is God. It's just a third person. He's called a comforter, parakaleo, because he comes alongside to call and to help you do the work as a believer in John 14, 16. You get paralegal along a lawyer, parallel, paramedic along a medic, parallel parking along a curb, paracaleo, call alongside to help you do the work. He will verify and testify of Jesus and glorify Jesus, never of himself, John 15, 26, 16, 14. I say this because too many people pray to the Spirit and they glorify the Spirit more than they do Jesus Christ. We are told and commanded that we are to pray to the Father in the name of Jesus, not the Holy Spirit. All right? Each has their position. They're all God. They all have their place. The Father is the source. Jesus is the channel. The Holy Spirit is the agent. And they all have their place. You have people glorifying the Holy Spirit more than Jesus. Get up and walk out. It's not biblical. It's just that simple. Okay? Now... The person of the Holy Spirit was the one the apostles were to wait for in Jerusalem, as you know. In Luke 24, 49, you have the promise of the Father. They would be endued with power from on high. Jesus said they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit in Acts 1, 5, after many days. Many people object to that phrase. Why? John coined it. Jesus used it. Why would we ignore it? And it's very specific. The baptism is for empowerment for service. Acts 1, 8. He says, you will be witnesses to me through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, Acts 1.8. Notice, witness to me, meaning I am living out his life in me by depending on him to be a light and salt to those around me. Not merely witnessing about Jesus, but being a witness to Jesus that I am truly living and yielding to him. That's what it's talking about. Then my witness is effective. The picture that Paul presented the Romans in chapter 7 is contrary to yielding to the life of the Spirit. That that I don't want to do, I end up doing. That that I end up doing, I don't want to do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver his body at death? I, 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 I. 
Then he says, praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 8 of Romans, life in the Spirit. No more eyes there. So chapter 7 of Romans, you're still trusting your own ability, your own flesh. You still think you can do it in your flesh. And you will die every time. No one will live. If you live, no one else lives. And you won't live. If you think you'll live, you won't. The flesh can do nothing but bring misery. Each of us have this kind of ability to think more highly of our flesh than we ought to. We have to be careful. Every time I have not yielded to the Spirit of God to live through me, I have failed. And so will you. Every time. Listen to Samuel Brenhill. He said the following. If you ask how the Holy Spirit can dwell within us and work through us without destroying our personality, I cannot tell. How can the electric fluid fill and transform a dead wire into a live one, which you dare not touch? How can a magnetic uh, current fill a piece of steel and transform it into a mighty force, which by uh, its touch can raise tons of iron as a child would lift a feather? How can fire dwell in a piece of iron until its very appearance is that of fire and it becomes a firebrand? I cannot tell. Now, what fire and electricity and magnetism do in iron and steel, the Holy Spirit does in the spirit of men who believe in Jesus, follow him wholly, and trust him intelligently. He dwells in them and inspires them till they are all alive in the very life of God, the transformation wrought in men by the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the power that fills them are amazing beyond measure. You are a witness of that to your life. You're the first one. You were there when God messed you up for good. It was the power of God who did it. It's the power of God as you yield to him. And the same with my life. No different. The word spirit has caused many people to think of the person of the Holy Spirit as an impersonal being. While in reality, he is a very personal one. The word spirit in the Hebrew, as you know, ruach, which means... Um, uh, air or wind or breath, depending on the context. And the Greek is much the same, pneuma. And it means wind or breath, and the context will depend what it is. I think that it's a, an excellent word, since the Holy Spirit cannot be seen. But you can see the effects of the Holy Spirit on people. So you were born again at a certain point in time, and prior to that, you lived and acted a certain way. Then you repented of your sins and the Holy Spirit came into your life. And all of a sudden, your physical being didn't change, but your response, your conduct, your words, everything changed. So though people couldn't see the Holy Spirit and you can't see, you saw the effects on your life. The wind blows from the north to the south. This tree bends. I don't see the spirit of the wind, but I know that it's blowing from here to there because of the effects. The same thing in your life and mine. Jesus told Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes, and you can hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit in John 3, 8. You didn't change outwardly, but man, the inside changed and your life changed completely by the Spirit of God. He's very personal. The Old Testament records the Holy Spirit coming upon selected individuals for God's will and uh, his purposes. Not everyone had the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Joseph interpreted dreams in Genesis 41 by the hand of God for Pharaoh. God anointed Baziel and Aholiab to understand the building of the tabernacle in Exodus 31.3. God anointed the 70 elders uh, as he took the anointing for Moses in Numbers 11. 
that they would help him lead. Uh, the Lord put um, his word in Balaam's mouth, and his spirit came upon him, and yet he was a prophet of familiar spirits in Numbers chapter 23 and 24. And the spirit came upon Gideon, literally clothed him in Judges 7. And Samuel told Saul the spirit of God would come upon him in 1 Samuel 10, 6. And the Holy Spirit departed from Saul and Samson, the book of Judges in chapter 16 and 1 Samuel 16. And the spirit of the Lord came upon the prophets of old. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Micah, and so on and so forth. All of them. But... The Spirit of God didn't abide in any one and all of them at the same time. There were specific people, kings, prophets, people of special service. But not everybody had the Spirit of God in the Old Testament in them, abiding the way it does in you in the New Testament. There's a big difference. The New Testament equally records the Holy Spirit as personal, coming upon people to accomplish the will of God. The Holy Spirit is responsible for the conception of Christ in the womb of Mary, as you know. Matthew 1.20, it says, For that which is conceived in the Jews of the Holy Spirit, Gabriel said. Not a man. In Luke 1.34-35, Mary said to the angel, How can this be? I know not a man. And the angel answered and said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Very, very clear. The Holy Spirit is seen descending on Christ at his baptism, as you know, in the shape of a dove, symbolic of gentleness and purity. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up out of the water, as you know, immediately. He saw the Spirit of God descending upon him and God speaking from, uh, from heaven. And you had the Father speaking from heaven, the Son in the water coming out, the Holy Spirit coming down upon him, the three bearing witness completely of what he was doing. John says... That God told him that on whom he saw the Spirit descend, he was the Messiah in John 1.33. That was the identification. Now, there was never a time when Jesus was without the Holy Spirit. He was conceived, endowed, filled, led, driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. For God gave him the Spirit, not by measure. John 3.34 tells us very, very clearly. So the Holy Spirit is a person, not a net, not a force, the third person of the Trinity. Now, having established that, secondly, the Holy Spirit in the believer. We've kind of inferred it, now let's look at it in the believer. The promise of the comfort of the Holy Spirit was to indwell the believer. Listen to the words of Jesus, John fourteen seventeen. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and she shall be in you. He is called the spirit of truth, even as Jesus is called the spirit of truth in John 14, 6. He is, the very, he is in the believer and in every believer as God's down payment and engagement ring called the earnest of the spirit in 2 Corinthians 1, 22, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. He has a threefold relationship with people. With people bring, are brought to conviction of sin, righteousness, and judgment. John 14, 17. <coughs> 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 he is in people, meaning you're born again. And then he comes upon you, Acts 1, 8, for empowerment for service. With, in, and upon. 
Again, if you've gone through the New Believer Study, you've gone through all of this old territory. Okay? Very important. Now, the Holy Spirit will teach the believer all things we are told by the words of Jesus. Listen to his words in John 14, 26. But the help of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. The natural man does not receive with acceptance or approval the things of God, as you know, for they are spiritually understood and discerned by the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit of God. Paul makes this very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10 down to 14. I has not seen, and he has not heard, neither has entered the heart of man. He goes to say the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit, for they are spiritually discerned. And he makes it very, very clear. We have the mind of Christ. The text has nothing to do with Christians not being educated or able to in, in, interact with in, intellectually with non-believers. For Paul certainly did that at Mars Hills and the synagogues where he went to, Ephesus and others, okay, in Acts 17 and 19. It just makes a distinction between the spiritual things of God. Once you're born again, you can understand the Word of God. God speaks to you. When you're not born again, you're spiritually dead. And you don't understand. You say, well, this stuff's this stupid. I mean, you guys believe this stuff? The Christian has an unction from the Holy One and knows all things and learns from the Holy Spirit. First John 2.20 tells us. In other words, God uses teachers, but it's the Holy Spirit who really instructs us, right? As we examine the things of the Word of God, the Holy Spirit is the one who turns on the light in the believer's life. And the context here in 1 John 2.20 is in contrast to the false teaching of the Gnostics who were teaching that there was mysterious religious knowledge that you had to ascend up these emanations to achieve it. So you had the pneumaticoids, those who were high spiritual, and you had the psychicoids who were just carnal. So they divided the two. And John is right in contrast to the deception of the Gnostics. Now the believer also learns from the gifted men of the Holy Spirit who has anointed them and called them, even as we've seen it in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 12. God uses men, but it's the Holy Spirit who is a true teacher, causing us to receive and examine the truth of God's Word. The men are scriptural, but the danger is the dependency on self and not enough on the Holy Spirit. We all have feet of clay. And we can all just trust our own ability. So we got to stay in the Word of God. we got to make sure that we're following God's lead and verifying everything. Much like city people who um, know nothing about farming. And so we just go up to the stores and we buy food, right? But if there's ever any emergency or stuff like that, you know, we'll, we'll die. The farmer, he just feed himself. And too often it's like that. People are dependent on themselves. And not the Spirit of God. It's got to be by the Spirit of God, ladies and gentlemen. David prayed, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Psalm 119, 18. Now, the Holy Spirit will bring all things to our remembrance, Jesus said also. John 14, 26. Listen. And bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. He's talking to his disciples, remember. Jesus said, I still have many things to say to you, but you are not able to bear them now in John 16, 12. You say the same thing to your children when they're young and immature. Well, Dad, you don't, you don't, you'll understand in maybe a couple of years. Right now, you're not going to get it. Because you know it needs growth, development, maturity. He said the same thing to his disciples. Now, I need to study. I need to meditate upon the Word. 
so it can have recall. Second Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker that doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing what? The word of truth. So if you're not studying, what are you drawing from? If you're not understanding, what is it you're applying to your life? If you're not in the word of God, what is in you? It's important the word of God is in you. You repeat it reading. Take a book. Start with Jude. One chapter. Read it over and over again. Fifty times. You can see it in your mind. Observations. In context. Mark them down. Key words. Key phrases. Key themes. Natural divisions. Ask questions. What? Where? How? Who? Why? Tear the text apart. Make an outline of it. So you can understand the flow. They're letters. Introduction. Conclusion. The body of the letter. Now. I am to use my brain. But God help me if I depend on it solely for my understanding spiritually. I would be foolish to think that I am, uh, as I go to the wall and I turn the switch on, that the electricity is coming from the switch. So with God's knowledge and understanding and wisdom. He uses my intellect, but it is not the source. Okay? It would be deception of my own. And sometimes we start well and then we end up in the flesh and we start believing our own press and we start thinking, oh, yeah, well, you know, I mean, God's doing some good stuff, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing too bad. You know, oh, you really? Okay, let me just pull back the throttle. Let's see how good you do. All on your own. Can't do it. The Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth, ladies and gentlemen. Listen again to the words of Jesus. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. John 16, 13. Truth is verified by his word, for it is by the truth that we are set free. John 17, 17. The word of God is the only absolute spiritual truth about any matter or subject it touches. The spirit of truth is always opposed to the spirit of error in 1 John 4, 1 and 6. The common phrase, and some of you young people have heard it from your teachers, your professors... All truth is God's truth. How many heard that? It's a lie. All truth is God's truth is verified by God's word and doesn't add, contradict, or put on the same level of authority as the word of God. Simple. Finish the sentence. These are educators that are humanists to destroy the authority of God's word. For the truth to be God's truth It must be verified by God's word, the only absolute filter. Now the Holy Spirit will show us things to come also. Listen to Jesus again in John 16, 13. For he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. Notice this is the only one of the four that doesn't say the word all. This is the only one Jesus didn't say all. Because God doesn't show us all things. In Deuteronomy 29, 29, it speaks the secret things belonging to God. But the context there is regarding Israel not knowing how God would regather them after their apostasy. But the principle is found throughout Scripture. Okay? Very, very clear. Now, Paul's inability to understand the mind and the wisdom of God is declared in the book of Romans about this atoning work. In chapter 11, 33 to 36, all the depths of wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his findings. Who has been his counselor? Who has given him advice? It just blows us away. We can't understand how God did all these things. He's amazing. 
God shows me his revealed will by his word. And the Holy Spirit illuminates it. God can show you personally through the word as you're reading, you're studying. God can speak to you personally, prophetically. But you test what God says by the word of God. If it's God who's speaking to you, you write it down and then you wait for God to do it. You don't go out and do it. So many people say, you know, God told me to tell you, you're going to marry me. Yeah, right. All right? Don't laugh. It happens in Pentecost circles all the time. God told me to tell you to give me $100. Or God told me to tell you to go on the mission field. And then they do those stupid things and their life falls apart and they blame God. No, blame the person. Blame yourself. If God has spoken to you, if you believe that, write it down and wait upon God to bring it to pass. You'll find out who it is. But first you judge it by God's word. We got to be Bereans. Acts 17, 11. Examine to find out if those things are so. Very important. Now, the Holy Spirit will bring liberty and transformation to each of us. This is part of his work. Listen in 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in the mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the Spirit of the Lord. You're, you're still under construction. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. But you should have progressed, developed, matured, and you're down the line somehow, okay? You still got a ways to go. When I'm giving my last breath, I'll be done. But not until then. We're just going forward. In the world, we were like pigs with a ring on our nose, being led around by sin. And now we can say to sin, no, I don't want that. I'm not going to go there. You couldn't do that before. And you're the first one to know it. There's no argument about that at all. You still have the potential. You still have the capacity. But now you have the will and ability to say no by the Spirit of God. We are transformed by the Holy Spirit, Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you by the mercy of God, you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not fashioned to this world system, but be transformed, metamorphosed, like a caterpillar to a, flock, to a butterfly, that you may prove what's good, acceptable, the perfect will of God, by the Spirit of God, His Word. We are not to grieve the Holy Spirit, bring pain to it, Ephesians 4, 30. We're not to quench the Holy Spirit in 1 Thessalonians 5.19. We're not to lie to the Holy Spirit to pass ourselves off as something that we're not, Acts 5.3. And we're not to resist the Holy Spirit, hardening our heart, Acts 7.51. And we are not to insult or do despite to the Spirit of grace, rejecting what God has provided for us in Hebrews 10.28. There's many things that can be done against the Holy Spirit, and we're warned against it. We're not to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, an ongoing denial of Jesus to the point of being given up by God, Matthew 12, 31 and 32. You see, the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, Paul says in Romans eight sixteen. But the important thing is not that I say I know God. The more important thing is that God verifies that he knows me. As I'm in the word of God, he convicts me, he guides me, he, he reproves me, he directs me, he fills me with his love, he fills me with his power. Then I know God knows me. You understand? No one can know that for you. That's your relationship with Jesus Christ. A.W. Tozer, again, a previous generation, challenges all of us as he stated the following. Listen carefully, I'm quoting. That every Christian 
can be and should be filled with the Holy Spirit would hardly seem to be a matter of debate among Christians. Yet some will argue that the Holy Spirit is not for the plain Christians, but for ministers and missionaries only. Others hold that the measure of the Spirit received at regeneration is identical with the received at the disciples at Pentecost. A few will express a a languid hope that someday they may be filled. End of quote. He says, I want here boldly to assert that it is my happy belief that every Christian can have a copious outpouring of the Holy Spirit and a measure far beyond received at conversion. The Holy Spirit comes in us, was with us, came in us, and we are to receive the upon experience as often as we need it to be filled continually. Separate experiences. The greatest evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit is in and upon the believer in the New Testament is found throughout the book of Acts, which is in reality really the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. That's where the real title should be. Now, Peter identifies the coming of the Holy Spirit being fulfilled, the prophecy of Joel in chapter 2 there in Acts 2. He says, this is that we've spoken to the prophet Joel. We are told that great power came upon the apostles in Acts 4.33. We are told that the people were cut to the heart by the Holy Spirit in Acts 2.37, the preaching. Stephen cannot be resisted with the wisdom of the Spirit, which he spoke in Acts 6.10 before they stoned him to death. The Samaritans received the Holy Spirit after they believed in Acts 8.15-17. And Saul was filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 9.17 after he was born again. And the Holy Spirit fell upon all the house of Cornelius in Acts 10.44 as Peter was preaching. They were born again and filled with the Spirit at the same time. The Holy Spirit says, separate unto me Barnabas and Saul in Acts 13.2. The church sends nobody out. It's the Holy Spirit who sends people out to be effective. When the church sends people out, they become ineffective. God's the one who sends you. The Holy Spirit was the advisor of the first church council. It seems good to the Holy Spirit and us, Acts 15.28. Today, people say, it seems good to us. Don't even mention the Holy Spirit. They think they're in control. The Holy Spirit forbade Paul to preach in Asia in Acts 16.6. Paul told the Ephesian elders he was going bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem in Acts 20.22. Paul says, well spoke the Holy Spirit by Isaiah. And he went to the Gentiles in Acts 28.25 and 28. Holy Spirit's all over the place. In the believer. Now, the Holy Spirit is the regenerator, illuminator, and developer of our faith in Christ then. Jesus said this, John 3, 3, 5. Most assuredly, I say to you, he's talking to Nicodemus, unless one is born again of water and the Spirit, you cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. So if we're not repentant, we're not born again, you'll never see heaven. It's an absolute requirement. Paul told the Corinthians that the things of God are revealed by the Holy Spirit. We already mentioned in 1 Corinthians 2, 10. Paul says we are being changed into the image of Christ from glory to glory by the Spirit of God, 2 Corinthians 3.18, day by day, moment by moment, as we yield to it. And Paul told Titus the following. Listen carefully. Titus 3, 4 through 5. 
But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration by the renewing of the Holy Spirit. He's the one doing the work. The personality of the Holy Spirit affects and influences the believer without destroying the personality of the person being a co-participant. We yield or we resist. One of the two. You have a free will. God doesn't force you to do anything. Listen to 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God called Jesus a curse, and no one says can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Paul speaking to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1, 5. He said, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Power of the word and the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. Listen. In joy of the Holy Spirit. Affliction, joy of the Holy Spirit. What contradiction is that? It isn't a contradiction. It's one. Through the sufferings of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're able to do what He allows us and wants us to do. Even sufferings. 2 Timothy 1.14 That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. Hebrews 2.4 God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. Hebrews 3.7-8 Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear my voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion the days of trials in the wilderness. Jude 20. There's only one chapter. Verse 20. But you... Beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Mark thirteen eleven. But when they arrested you, when they arrest you and deliver you up, and do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak, but whatever is given to you in that hour, speak that, for it is not you who speaks, but the Holy Spirit. When you get thrown in jail. When you're in trouble, when you're being persecuted, then the Holy Spirit speaks through. He gives you that direction. Very, very important. So the Holy Spirit is to be a work, at work in the believer. All the time. All the time. The, that work should be in your life and in mine. You should be the first one to understand, to see it. Other people should be seeing the, the effects on your life. But you should be the one bearing witness of this. So... Thirdly, you have the Holy Spirit now in the church. So we've seen the, the person of the Holy Spirit and in the believer, but now corporately in the church. The Holy Spirit is vital for the life of the church, for he will be working in and through the church as a corporate body, bringing forth family life, body life, through the various ministries that he brings about. First, there will be a new life being birthed out in response to the gospel. And God will add daily such as should be saved, the Bible says in Acts 2, 47. He saves. The Holy Spirit birthed the church at Pentecost in Acts 2. The preaching of the gospel went forth and the believers believed. Just like I always give a proclamation because you always have to assume there's non-believers, whether it be here or over the internet. You always give a chance for repentance. The individual saints are to reach out to the lost, 
having access to people that I will never have, your friends, your neighbor, where you work, whatever it is. That's part of the church corporately. The church purposely reaches out to the community through concerts, through outreaches, witnessing as we do many different ways to reach the lost. The Holy Spirit will bring unity also, harmony and peace in the church. Ephesians 4, 3 is very clear on that. We do not bring about harmony. We only disrupt the harmony of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that brings harmony. You and I um, are disruptors. We, we don't make peace. We disrupt peace. I have to walk in the Spirit if there's going to be peace in my life and in my home and with people that I deal with, especially in the church. We do not allow backbiting, slander, or gossip among the staff. We allow them to take care of things one-on-one like Matthew 18. We don't talk about each other, and we teach you not to allow that. Sometimes people try to use you. They say, well, you know, I know you've been here a long time, so I want to ask you a question about this or whatever it is, a person or something. And they're setting you up. Well, as soon as they begin, say, wait a minute, have you spoken to this person about this? Well, no. Well, don't talk to me about it. Matthew 18, you go to them. And by the way, I'm going to see them today in about an hour. I'll tell them you want to talk to them. And <laughs> of gossip. Are we clear here? All right? Matthew 18. Real simple. All right? Now, the Holy Spirit will make the church effective through the diversity of the gifts as you know. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. Where would the church of Pasadena be if I did not yield to my gift of pastor-teacher? If I just entertained you or gave you nice, funny little stories... And I had all kinds of activities for you and your children. How mature, how, how developed spiritually do you think you'd be after 36 years? Nothing. Is the church of Pasadena benefiting from your gift? What would Calvary Chapel Pasadena be like if everyone was just like you? That could be a good thing or a bad thing. Would it be a loving, warning church about error or just a critical church? Would it be proclaiming righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, or self-righteousness? Would it be a serving church or a sitting church? Would it be a praying church or a complaining church? Would it be a tithing church or a lip service church? Ask yourself that. I just assume you're part of the church. You come. But you have to ask yourself, if everybody was just like me, what would the church look like? Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's not a pretty picture. That means God wants us to correct it, to fix it. None of us are perfect, but all of us are called to the ministry. The Holy Spirit, through the gifted men, will perfect and mature the saints, as you know, to bring about efficiency of each part in order to bring a full potential maturity and effectiveness of the body of Christ in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, to do the work of ministry, to not be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine of deception, to speak the truth in love, and to be a participant always in the body life. That's what the nature of the church is all about, ladies and gentlemen. It is not a club. It is not like a football team, you know, we got a few number of guys out there that need desperate rest, and you've got a whole stadium where people need a lot of desperate exercise, Okay? It's not to be like that. 
The Holy Spirit will give vision also for the various ministries, even as Philip was told to go down to Samaria in Acts 8.5. It's the Holy Spirit who gives this vision, vision from within the church for the various ministries, for the various needs as God opens them up. He does that from within as you're hearing the voice of God, as you're te teaching and, and, and listening to the voice of God. And you're, you're under that teaching. Vision for outside the church is also important. Where there is no vision the, or revelation, the people perish. Proverbs 9, 29, 18 says. Too many Christians turn inwardly, having no vision, being an end in themselves. They end up looking more like a dead sea than a sea of Galilee. It ends in themselves. The greater and the greatest privilege of a Christian is not that of being a container of the Holy Spirit, but a channel of the Holy Spirit to impart to others. That is the greater privilege. You see, the Holy Spirit also will give direction to the church and ministry. In Acts 6, as you know, verse 1 through 4, um, to raise the men qualified for service, to assign them to various tasks as they were assigned as deacons, to take care of the things with the uh, widows, the deacons prepared for the church to come to get fed. Uh, and, and, you know, all the deacons here, they prepare everything before you come. They clean, they get everything prepared so you can come and not be distracted. And you sit and hear the voice of God so that he can do a work in you and you can be involved and be obedient to the Lord. This has been the practice for the last 36 years as you have deacons and elders that are here way before you. And they carry those things and they serve you. Also, to not allow the teaching of the word to be neglected. Not only to raise qualified men and women, but also to not be neglected. Raising up the various pastors anointed by the Spirit of God to deal and to teach and to instruct. Um, regularly teaching uh, through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. So that you can grow, so that you can hear the voice of God. Our children's ministry teach inductively. They're being taught on their level. We don't entertain them. They grow in the Lord. The ruin of Christians usually is not because they're not getting fed, but because they're not willing to open their mouth and chew and swallow. You can starve in a cafeteria if you spend your time always in the pudding and the desserts. You need to feed, you need to open your mouth, you need to study, you need to apply, you need to live out, you need to die to self, you need to ask God for wisdom. All of us. The Holy Spirit desires to direct the direction of the church. You know, in Acts 15, the first church council, the prophets spoke by the Holy Spirit of God. They agreed that the decision was to not lay a heavy burden on the Gentiles in Acts 15. It was the Holy Spirit who directed this. First Church Council made that very clear. It seems good to the Holy Spirit and us in verse 28. They didn't say, well, you know, we're calling the shot. Seems good to the Holy Spirit and us today. Where's the Holy Spirit? Everybody's organized and sanitized and got their laptops out and all their corporate principles and everything else. The men of the church are not perfect. They can and will make mistakes, but God honors the heart and is open to God if they're seeking him. God is able to direct and guide us as well as you. Now, the Holy Spirit is the one who sends out missionaries also by calling them. Very important. The church doesn't do that. That's the problem with, with going out. The Holy Spirit says separate Barnabas and Paul for the work of the ministry or Saul. Acts 13, 2. Many won't go out till they get their guaranteed letters of support. 
yet they know God has told them to go. This is the modern version. But yet there's men through history that didn't go that way. They just trusted God and went. And God provided for them. Hudson Taylor, George Mueller, to mention a few and many others. They didn't depend on man. They depended on God. They obeyed God. Others are talking about returning before they even leave. They're not called. Simple. My son keeps telling me to leave the Iron Curtain and go up to Idaho, the real America. I can't. I can't go anywhere. This is what God's called me. I cannot leave. Simple. I can decide anything I want, but God help me. That's the difference between being called and just making it a profession, ladies and gentlemen. And there's no different for you. No different. The Holy Spirit forbade Paul to preach in Mythia and Bithynia, as you know, and directed to Troas in that vision in Acts 16, 6 through 7. God will do that. He'll direct and guide us. He's done this through the years. He's done it in your own life. God's timing is crucial. God's man is essential. When God's timing and God's man come together, God does an incredible work. But also the Holy Spirit empowers the church for the spiritual warfare because we are in a warfare. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. We are to be strong in the Lord, the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God. In chapter 6, verse 10 there of Ephesians. As the church of Christ, we are to be totally dependent on the Holy Spirit to be uh, empowered by Him continually, as Ephesians 5, 18 says. We are to put on the whole armor of God, not part of it. Ephesians 6, 6, 13 through 18. Our weapons are not carnal but mighty, bringing down the strongholds against the enemy. In 2 Corinthians 10, 4. We depend on Him. The reason is that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. Ephesians 6, 12. It isn't flesh and blood, ladies and gentlemen. There's a real devil. There's a third of the angels that's war, that war against us all the time. The enemy is ever-present to instill fear, but the church must remember that God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And the greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Second Timothy 1, 7, and in 1 John 4, 4. We trust him. The Lord Jesus said he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against him. Matthew 16, 18. The church of Jesus Christ is healthy, well, looking for Jesus Christ. Not everything you see is the church of Jesus Christ. You have to ask yourself, am I part of the church of Jesus Christ? Does God speak to me? Does he direct me? Does he rebuke me? Does he guide me? Do I obey him? You get your answer. The cry of Zerubbabel should be our own. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Zechariah 4, 6. Then and only then will we be able to endure and crucify the flesh so that Christ can live through us. As Galatians 2.20 says, <clears throat> I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, an American with an Englishman um, was viewing Niagara Falls, and it's an incredible view if you've never been to the Whirlpool. And he said, he said, friend, come and I'm going to show you the greatest unused power in the world. And taking him over the edge, he saw there the Niagara Falls says, there, there is the greatest unused power in the entire world. His friend said, oh no, brother, not so. He says, the greatest unused power in the world is the Holy Spirit of the living God. 
Every time I have not yielded to the Spirit of God, I have failed. And I will fail. Every time. Today, much of the seeker-friendly emergent church and ecumenical church are united by the common bond of love, good works, and to better mankind, but not the gospel of repentance from sin. It's a diluting of the gospel. Often it is transfer growth from other churches or various religious groups. There are good moral people and immoral people together. They're just bound in general oneness. There are compromising Christians, baby Christians, and indifferent Christians in these groups sometimes. This is an attempt to unite people under the banner of love, oneness, ecumenicalism. That's not to be so. Most of them follow the methodology of church growth principles that guarantee growth of the church after the principles of church growth here at Fuller Seminary. Marketing, corporate principles, um, and management principles. Um, cultural relativity. Not depending on the Holy Spirit of God. So everything becomes subjective. The seeker-friendly churches practice canvassing the areas to survey people. To see what kind of church they would want. To know what kind of topics they would want to listen to and tolerate. How long would you sit under a preacher teaching? What kind of atmosphere would you like in a church? And so they create a church and they give it to the people. And they give it to the church. They change the nature of the church. You've got a human-made church, not the church of Jesus Christ. The vision of the church must always come from God's Spirit. Too often men have their own vision of building their own kingdom, not the Lord. Too often they are motivated by money, power, fame, or dames. They all go together. Rick Warren's vision is to establish the kingdom of God on earth rather than preparing people to meet the Lord in the air. I'm here to prepare you to meet Jesus by life or by death. And then you'll know how to live life. The emergent church movement wants to get rid of the traditional gospel, the church and Christians, and replace it with the new reformation, new Christianity that is neither gospel nor the church of Jesus Christ. A church claiming to be Christian and does not believe in the vicarious atoning work of Jesus Christ for the sins of the world and does not believe in the inerrancy and infallibility of the word of God is not scriptural and is not the church of Jesus Christ. Listen to the words of Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. And as long as I'm the pastor, I will proclaim that until my death. I will not waver. I will not go wider, and God help you if you do. It must be the word of God, ladies and gentlemen. If we're going to be true to the nature of the church by the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is to be at work in the church. He's a person, he's in the believer, but he wants to work in the church corporately. All the pieces put together. And so the Holy Spirit is the life source of the church and always to be from these three perspectives. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is to be at work in the believer. And the Holy Spirit is to be at work in the church. That's the nature of the church, according to the scriptures. God help you if you alter it. Or you think you can do a better job, that's worse.
Father, thank you for your grace, your goodness. We love you. We thank you. Lord, we pray for those that are here or over the internet that do not know you, that you would open their eyes, convict them of their sin. They will call on your name, Lord. As you're praying, if you're here, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved. This is your prayer of repentance right now. If you believe what you've heard, and he's going to save you and forgive you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.